out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the musician John Ford, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. One-time member of Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera, also the Straubs for quite a few years, famous for writing part of the Union. Then the Monks, who was also famous for Nice Legs, Shame About the Face, but has been in various other musical combos and has been sort of playing with the Straubs occasionally, you know, on various albums that have come out and also anniversary dates, etc., which you'll find out much more in this interview. So anyway, after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. John, it's over to you. Well, when I was a lot younger, because I was... Um... I was born in uh, 48, actually, <laughs> which is disgusting. Yes. But anyway, yeah, so I grew up in as a child in the 50s. And my biggest um, sort of influence when I, because I started to sing and play at around that time when I when I was a kid. So my, my grandmother bought me a ukulele and I sort of, and I got a six string guitar and figured that out. And my so my biggest influence of that time was a guy called Lonnie Donegan. Yes. He recorded, he, he was he was like before the Beatles, he was the biggest thing in England, and, and he did a take on a lot of, which a lot of people didn't realise, and I certainly didn't as a child. He took a lot of uh, Woody Guthrie, you know, the American folk singer songs, and made them his own, you know. Yes. And Lead Belly as well, the blues singer. And uh, he he was like the biggest thing, you know, he was a big pop star, you know, before before 1960, and the you know we had also another Cliff Richard and the Shadows was a big influence on me. As yes, well. absolutely. I, mean, I, I don't know when I first heard of, so as a child, I always I was always very into um, even though I couldn't read music and I didn't really understand. I I got bored with the, the doo wop period, you know, the where there were most of the songs were con, were constructed of C A minor F and G, ba 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 All the songs were, like that. and I really got bored either at like ten or eleven years old. And then when I heard the Shadows do Apache with all these minor, because I thought, what the hell is this? This is fantastic. So as a child, I was into, you know, a lot of things you know and uh that's that's what got me it's sort of writing song, song yes i know um i think bob dylan was a huge lonnie donegan fan as well actually from um yes from reading various articles and john peel was a huge fan of lonnie so um yes yeah, it, it yeah. was it was the ultimate thing so when we came to sort of that early sort of 60s period there was the great moment wasn't there music started to change drastically before that had you were you sort of interested in yeah that kind of Elvis and Little Richard time and, and Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran, you know, rock and roll. Well, yeah, I, I was aware of it. My father was, uh, you know, the record buyer. In the family. So we had all, you know, we had Little Richard, uh, definitely Elvis and all that, all that stuff. I was you know, not so much Buddy Holly. My father didn't buy Buddy Holly for some reason. So it was Lonnie Donegan, Elvis, Bill Haley and the Comets, uh, which, believe it or not, uh, you know, Rock Around the Clock, right? The uh, I was on top of the pops when Rock Around the Clock resurfaced 
Excellent. And, uh, we actually were, yeah, uh, when I was in Hudson Ford, we, we, uh, we did a show on Top of the Box with Bill Haley. I couldn't believe it, you know. Amazing. And, um, yeah, yes. that, that was it. And he sang that song, you know. I don't know whether he had the same band, but he sang it just as good as on the record, you know. But yeah, all that stuff was a big influence on me. Yes. Uh, that uh, your, your parents were obviously very hip to the trip then, because, you know, my parents, who I love, um, but they were, you know, much more into that country sound. I mean, he, my dad liked Elvis, but he was quite young during the war, mm. war period, and they, you know, obviously liked people like the Andrews sisters, and there was other people like Teresa Brewer and these sort of slight, um, yes, sort of singer-songwriters that, not singer-songwriters, you know, like slightly lounge, not Elvis, uh, not Frank Sinatra, but mm. people like, yeah, the, these kind of women singers that, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, they were no, okay. My father, was, uh, my father was always into uh, all the rock stuff, really, I suppose. Um, yes. And, he, uh, and you so grew up in London, didn't you, as well? Yeah, Fulham, place called Fulham. Fulham, yes. But then Craven Cottage. Did you, um, how did the, how did the wall sort of, I mean, obviously survived it because you wouldn't be here, but... Oh. Sorry, I'm sorry that my... Uh, That's fine. Girlfriend came in there. This, is, this is life. Yeah, no, but what was the war period like for your, your family? Did they talk about... The, the war? Yes, the second one. Um, I, not much really, no. No. I, I don't really... I mean, I was aware of it. I mean, my mum used to say we couldn't get, you know, food or oranges or bananas during the war. But uh, I, I didn't really know. I mean, I didn't have much experience. I mean, as a kid, I mean, you, you know, what goes on before you, you're not really interested in. You no, know, absolutely. But I just, yeah, that, that was some amazing. So look, 1964, brilliant year, mainly because I was born. But this, was, this is when you formed your first band. 64 at school, yeah. And again, this was another big milestone for me because, again, as when I heard Apache, uh, you know, change my sort of uh, musical style, uh, when I heard the Beatles, that was, um, you know, the, with all their chords, chords I'd never heard of, put in pop songs, pop yes. songs you know. And uh, so that, yeah, so even though I was already playing, you know, singing at school, I had... Uh, I met uh, a guy uh, at school and we sort of got together, started writing songs, and that formed my sort of first band called uh, James Fender and the Vulcans in, in, in around 1964, yeah. Such a great name. Did Why was the bass the instrument of choice at that point? It wasn't, actually, because when I grew up, as I said before, my grandmother bought me um, a ukulele and I, I went on to, you know, a, a proper guitar. Um, the I can't remember exactly what happened, but the bass player left in the band, and it was uh, it's a bit like Paul McCartney. I was sort of, you know, ushered into playing the bass, and my father very nicely went out and bought me, uh, you know, Paul because I was into the Beatles. Paul McCartney bought me the the old Hofner, you know, bass, and and, and that's how I, that's how I started playing the bass in James Fender and the Vulcans. Blimey. And you know, when you when you play the guitar ready. You know basically what uh, a bass guitar, you know, is supposed to do within a band. You know, whereas if you, you know, you can't really sit at home with a bass guitar. And although a lot of kids do, I see on the internet, uh, you know, writing a song on the bass or practicing on your own on the bass is a very difficult instrument to do without having people, 
you know, around you. Know. Yes, I know. I see a lot of kids, kind of incredible musicians, but just on their own in their room, sort of posting these little bits up of classic rock songs from their generation. They're from probably grandfather's generation. More, <laughs> it's amazing, really. Some of them are really good. I mean, it's uh, it's a pity to you know, with you know, with the advent of the uh, internet, it's uh, it's been a, it's done a, a lot of musicians a lot of good. In the same time, it's like ruined the music business. You know. Uh, <laughs> two different, one extreme to the other. So you get these kids play brilliantly, and you know in their bedroom and post these things. But where where they go from there is not you know. Yes. Next thing you see, you see them playing on the street, and again you see these kids playing on the street. But yeah. you know, it's uh, definitely taken a toll on the music business. Yes. So then you obviously that perfect age, you know. That, that sort of experienced that kind of change of the 60s from sort of, I know it's a bit of a cliche from black and white to that kind of 67, the summer of love, where they had, um, I think it was a gathering mm. of the tribes in San Francisco with people like the Grateful Dead and Alan Ginsberg, and then the 14-hour Technicolor Dream in Ali Pali with Pink Floyd. Did you did mm. you sort of get quite hooked on that kind of musical transition during that period? Oh, yeah, yeah, without a doubt, yeah. Because I, I sort of fell into it because I was... Uh, uh, I jo- after I left Jones Fender and Roberts, I joined a band called. Because um, I had a job, you know, I was working in menswear, and uh, every week I would look in the Melody Maker for you know bass player wanted, and and there I saw it one day, bass player wanted. Remember, the, I remember the ad must be on the ball, and I turned up, and uh, Richard Hudson, who I was to be with for the rest of my career, or most of it, <laughs> uh, yes. was already the drummer. In James Friend and the Vulcans, they they picked me to be the bass player, and they were like um, a, a, a soul band, you know, a cover soul band, uh, which I knew absolutely nothing about. I sort of faked my way into this band because I was into like Cliff Richard and the Beatles, you know. But anyway, um, so that morphed into Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera, and during that period, I was doing a lot of sessions, session work for other people in uh, Denmark Street in London. And uh, the flower power thing, it was all the, you know, it was all the rage. I mean, you know, walking around with beads around your neck and my mum made me a caftan sort of, a, you know, smock sort of thing. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it it was a great period. And the same with all the shows. It was like, you know, wafts of marijuana coming across the stage. And Did you it come? Was a, it was actually a great period. It was fun. Yeah, did you go to places like the was it UFO with Joe, you know, Joe Boyd and Miles? Um, God, what's his name? Yeah, I went. I went to all those places. Not not that we played all of them, but uh, I think remember, there was a place called the Middle Earth in Covent Garden. Yes, that's the one. Downstairs, I remember doing the first gig with Al McGantry and Fairport Convention there, and they said, "Oh, you're so good, you guys." And we said, "This is our first show. We haven't played anywhere." But anyway. Yeah, and I used to go to the Roundhouse and the the Lyceum was a, a you know the uh, the one in the co- that was also in Covent Garden that was a big venue as well. Yeah, I mean I was uh, you know I was, it was yes. a fantastic time. And what was it like when you sort of suddenly saw people like Hendrix coming over or hearing Jefferson Aeroplane for you you know as a musician and hearing such a di- you know some in the Doors and people like that was that quite well, interesting? Well, believe it or not, in the days. Before iPhones, <laughs> when no one took any pictures, I actually played with Hendrix because we uh, Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera used to do um, 
um, an overnight sort of uh, spot, a weekly spot in the speakeasy. There's a big club called the Speakeasy. And we were down there on one of our nights, you know, we, we didn't get paid a lot. We, we couldn't even afford to buy a drink down. It was so expensive. We used to sit around with four straws sipping out of, a, you know, a can of Coke. That's how bad it was. And anyway, um, Hey Joe, uh, Hendrix's first hit, was at the top of the charts. And we were down there and we were playing and uh, it was going around that he was in the club. And lo and behold, he walked up to us and said, could I jump on the guitar? and play with you. So a guitarist got down, and for a couple of songs there, it was Hudson, Ford, and Hendrix. Oh, you know? oh my and God. Of no, there was no videos of that, because there weren't any, any cell phones, you know. And, uh, and then I think what happened, I got down, he got on my bass, and but there was a couple of other, you know, I can't remember, maybe Eric, I don't know who was down there, I can't remember. Um, and then, uh, yeah, all... It, 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 it came into this, you know, it, into this big jam with with Jimi Hendrix. He was quite an unassuming sort of guy. I imagined him more, um, I don't know, he was not larger than life uh, when I saw him. No. But very he... polite, you know. And also it coincided for some reason. The place got raided. I don't know. The police came down. So we are, I am the chief of police and everybody cheered, you know. <laughs> Uh, whether they knew Jimmy was down there, I do not know. But yeah, so for a while, as I say, for a while there, it was Hudson Ford and Hendrix. Blimey, that is such a great moment, isn't it? That would and you know what? He got up on stage, grabbed out. Our guitarist was very finicky with his sound. You know, Hendrix got up there. He had a right-handed guitar. He turned his guitar to the left, upside down, and played it like as it was. You know with the strings all the wrong way around. And and he immediately turned all his volume controls on his martial amp, you know, full on, you know. Sounded great. Yes. And did it did it have that quality that you, you kind of recognise straight away, thinking, God, how does he do what, that? What, from Jimmy? Yeah, Jimmy. What, from Jimmy? Oh, yeah, yeah, he played, as he normally played, uh, unbelievably upside down. <laughs> yeah, we've still got the bass. And when he got on my bass, we've still got that bass. I don't have it in America, but Hudson owns it now. Yes. that bass that he played on, yeah. And that was with me all the way through my career. I used that bass on the uh, Five Proud Walkers, Zelma Gantries, the Straw, Sutton Ford, and all the load of other stuff we did. Touched by Hendrix. God, that's quite something, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Touched by <laughs> That's some, yes. I know, amazing, though. I mean, you know, when you're young and you first hear Hendrix, it's it's always something, isn't it, really, for my generation, I suppose. But, yeah. And what was it like going in the studio? Because you did, you know, an album with the band, but was that 68, wasn't it? Um, are you talking uh, with what what, Elmer Gantry's? Yes, Elmer Gantry. James Render and the Vulcans. No, Elmer well, Gantry. Let me go back a bit, because James Render and the Vulcans, we, believe it or not, had a record out on Parlophone. We were, there was some competition called Ready, Steady, Win. It was like a uh, Ready, Steady, Go, Ready, Steady, Win. And we, we never we never won, but we got a record deal out of it, and we had a, a, a record out on the Parlophone called Mistletoe Love, and then we were on the album. And that was a big deal in those days for sort of an unknown band to get a deal, you know, on 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 an EMI label. That was good. But then when we moved, we never got another record deal until we were in, um, although we were recording with the Fire Pro Walkers, we never got a, a, a record deal until we formed Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera. And we had sort of a near-miss hit record with a song called Flames. 
Right. Which was uh, was played at that time. There were a lot of um, um, pirate radio stations, and they were playing it a lot. But yes, it uh, it never cracked the charts. I don't think, but it, it got around. I mean, yes. Did you did you get were you tuning into that um, you know the John Peel Perfume Garden kind of vibe as well? Oh yeah, I used to listen to all that. Yeah, he used to play our stuff a lot. I think. Uh, I would uh, imagine. Remember that that yeah, he was yeah. We we had well we did a lot of stuff for the BBC, Saturday Club, all all those sort of live shows. You know, like the Beatles had you know the BBC live album. Yes, we we did all those, and uh, they're flying around somewhere, but. Yeah, well, it was a very busy time between that, the shows, and um, my session work. And I was on, on, on a lot of like hit records, Home and Sermit, Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch, uh, loads of uh, stuff I played bass on, you know. Yes, I, I could imagine. I, got, I mean, um, was it Jimmy Page was very similar, wasn't it? He was kind of appealing. Yeah, before he was in Led Zeppelin, yeah. Yeah. Did you at that stage, because kind of so much was changing, and there was that, there was like these kind of quite progressive folk bands like Comus, who was sort of happening, and there was the incredible string band, and then you had that birth of kind of prog rock with a band called, I think, either One, Two, Three or Clouds that David Bowie loved, as well as that psychedelic world. How did you, well, how were you sort of digesting all this? Because there was so much that not much had happened before you know obviously we had you know the blues and we had jazz and then and and presley but there was just so much music opening up and as a musician being... yeah well there was there was there was always that sideline of the folk artists you know that started with bob dylan you know and people like the seekers you know the australian band yes that they were like you know they they sold as many records as the Beatles, and there was always that, you know, especially over here in America with the, you know, the singer, folk singer, songwriter. You know, I would, I would have done well at that time, actually. Yes, yeah, and we had, and a young Al Stewart yeah, as well. Was, um, yeah, Al Stewart, yeah, all that stuff. It was still going, and that, um, you know, and that's how the Straub started because they, you know, unbeknownst to me, around sixty four, sixty five, sixty seven, they were doing this. You know, they were like a bluegrass band, a three piece bluegrass band, which I, I'd heard of them, but I wasn't aware of that because we were far more into the rock rock and roll stuff, you know, with the Elm Gantry. Yeah, it was a hell of a lot of music. It was a great, you know, the whole of the, uh, you know, it, unfortunately it doesn't happen anymore. No, not that. Not, not, not. I don't know what it's like in England, but here it's terrible. I mean, I'm living in what I call cover band land. I mean, it's like on Long Island, it's like you can't do anything unless you're a cover band. Nobody listens to any new music anymore. Unless it's like, you know, the really big artists, like we've got Taylor Swift appearing at the Coliseum here. But, you know, underneath Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and a couple of the other big guys, there's nothing. It's like a big drop into, you know, the cover band. Yes, this is, I know, and DJs. People love DJs, don't they? Um, DJ, yeah. I mean, sort of, obviously, the 60s started brilliantly, had a great middle bit, and then it kind of finished with, you know, the death of Brian Jones, Hendrix, Joplin, John Jim Morrison and Altamont, which was obviously horrendous. How did that feel for you? Did it, you know, because it, it's kind of a, a change of a decade often has a little bit of a odd feeling when you think, God, it's the seventies. What's happened now? And well, then when they all died, when, when they, they died, died yes. Died, so, so yes, how so drastically? Yeah, it felt like an end of an. It felt like an end of an era. Really. I mean, although I wasn't, I wasn't too much into, you know, Janis Joplin. I like more of a. 
I know, I know she was a great singer and stuff. But and Jim Morrison, the Doors were the Doors sound better now than I remember them. Than what I noticed because you hear a lot of the Doors over here, and they were actually a weird sort of I don't know sort of a, a jam band that, that morphed into sort of good songs. I mean, he, and he had a good image and voice. Yeah, it, it was like an end of an era to, when it broke. You know, just before the seventies, I suppose. Yes. It, uh, and everyone ditched their you know beads and. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, that drummer, Richard Hudson, he used to wear so many beads he, he couldn't hold his head up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because you know people like Bowie had gone into some sort of straightforward you know R and B bands, and he tried folk, and then he more folk, and then mm-hmm. singer songwriter, yeah. and then he sort of got his glam period, and then obviously you you sort of leave the band in that period with, with Richard. What was that? Was that a big decision to to leave the band and join the street? You're talking about Elmer yes. talking about Elmer Gantry's? Yeah. Well actually what happened with Elmer Gantry's was we made the first album and the um which was uh what was it called? Uh oh just Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera, right. And uh we we you know we struggled to f- we were doing shows and stuff, you know, but we struggled to uh after Flames never really hit, to make the big time. And the album was, I suppose it was received okay. And we got on a, a compilation album and, uh, called uh, The Rock Machine Turns You On with a lot of American bands. Oh, and everyone yes. thought we were American. Yeah, that was a... So Flames was on that. But then um, Elmer, Elmer left, uh, we, you know, because things weren't going, you know, and I can't remember the exact thing why that... And we had a guy in the band called Paul Brett who replaced our original guitarist. And we made a second Velvet Opera album, not Elmer Gantry, it was a Velvet Opera album, which was more folky. And we wrote in a folk, a, a folk singer from, from Hammersmith called Johnny Joyce, who was very, had a very good voice, and he played the 12-string guitar. And that second album was more folky. I still think, I like it, I, I still think it was good. But then again, we did very few shows one of the shows we did do, which got me into the Straubs, was, or got me and Hudson into the Straubs, we played a, a show at the White Bear in Hounslow, which was a pub that Dave Cousins ran, ran as a sort of a folky arts lab thing yes. every week. David Burry was there. He had a lot of sort of up-and-coming artists there. And one of the few gigs we did do as the Velvet Opera with Johnny Joyce and Paul Bear was in that place. And Dave must have seen us. I never, I never spoke to him. You must have seen us, and anyway, that comes to the. If you want to talk about the next section, so the um, I was at we the band work wasn't really doing much, and we're talking about 1969, and then I heard that the Straubs, who were getting a name for themselves, were looking for a bass player, and so I turned up at the White Bear on my own. And uh, making out to Dave that, uh, you know, did he have any more shows at the White Bear? And he said, no, but we're looking for a bass player. And after about five or six pints, I was in the band. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. The best, yes. And then after another couple of pints, Richard Hudson was in the band. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. That's such a good... Yeah, yeah. that's how that happened. And, yeah. Yeah, cause... and Rick Wakeman, who I'd known from doing sessions, was already there. I said, Rick, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I'm in the straws. Because it was Rick Waitman, Dave Cousins, Tony Hooper, and they had a bass player, Ron Chesterman or Lindsay Cooper, I can't remember the name. Yes. So it was all set up, and we joined, and 
uh, six weeks after that, we made that album, believe it or not, the Antiques and Curios. That's just amazing. Yes, because, um, yes, Bowie used to have an arts lab thing, didn't he, down in South London and um, try to create yeah. a bit of a scene. I guess creating scenes in the late 60s was, was a thing that everyone was trying at that time because there was a sort of a, a lot of experimental kind of theatre companies yeah, as well yeah. Yeah. with Mime, Lindsay Kemp and people like that. Mime, yeah, we had, we had some... We had, in fact, one of our tours we had, uh, and I think Dave got that from David Bowie because I think David Bowie appeared at his club miming you know just miming yes and i remember we had this opening act and he was just a mime you know personally not my thing no quite quite tricky quite being a support band at uh, the best of times is tricky but mime mm, quite tricky isn't it yes because rick wakeman because i had a brother who was seven years older and he was into prog and the solo work of rick wakeman so i i became quite obsessed with rick in the 70s and uh late 70s so yes what so what was rick like because this is pre yes wasn't it and but an amazing you know uh, rick was exactly like he is now full of stories (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you know, full of jokes. Jokes. You know, he tells his jokes. The same as he, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, great guy. I mean, we got on well. He was a, a terrific piano player. I mean, what he did with the Straub stuff was like. And if you listen to that Antiques and Curios live album, he uh, we it it was you know it, it was it was great. I mean, for the um, for the time we had. When we got together, yes, and and we went in there and did that, and uh, and for me, see, coming from El McGantry's Velvet Opera, where it was all noisy, people throwing bottles, uh, drunk, you know, all that stuff. I immediately, I suppose, because of my experience in sessions playing a lot of other stuff, I immediately loved playing in the straws because people listened, they clapped after each song. Dave explained all the songs. You could hear the bass. And I've always, with Dave Cousins' tunes, if you listen to a lot of my bass playing and all those four albums, I, his tunes are very good, at least for me, to follow and make lines up on the bass. I always had that thing with his stuff. Yes. And uh, it was, uh, I, I made it, and the same with Hudson, even though he came from this big, you know, drum smashing band. He didn't have a drum kit, first of all, Antiques and Curios. He just had congas, a cymbal and a tambourine. And it was more of like an acoustic act. Yeah. uh, Yeah, it was great. I mean, immediately, I loved it immediately. And what was it like? Because you had Tony Visconti, who went on to do T-Rex and obviously Bowie. So what was, do you you remember much about being in the studio during that recording? Yeah, well, the first time I met Tony was in the the bathroom of... um, Air Studios, and uh, he's washing. Remember, he's washing his hair in the sink. <laughs> I won't tell you. I won't, I won't tell you on the air what he said to me why he was washing his hair. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, he produced. Um, he had some dealings with Dave before I joined the band, uh, as, as far as like a range. And he was an up up and coming producer, and he was very good with you know orchestrations, and he arranged a couple of things before I was actually in the band on the the very first album. I can't remember. Um, Yes. I can't remember that. But anyway, well, so the set, the the album after uh, after um, Antiques and Curios uh, from the Witchwood, he produced that, and uh, which had Hangman and the Papist, Rick on the you know Rick was on the piano and synthesizers and all that sort of stuff, and um, yeah, so that that was yeah working with he was good. 
Yes. And you and on the second album for you anyway, which would you you write thirty days, don't you? And also keep the devil outside. Uh, yeah, keep the devil outside. Was that on the album? That may have been a B side for uh, Benedictus, I think. Right. Uh, yeah. But Tony th- Hooper was singing that. Yeah. And what was the progress uh, process and and the general vibe like for doing Witchwood? Was that was the band on sort of on a bit of a sort of creative high at this stage? Um, it certainly was creative. Rick, uh, well, apparently, I wasn't too aware of it, but Rick was apparently at that time rehearsing with Yes. And he, obviously they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And after the recording of um, Wit from the Witchwood, he did leave. But there wasn't any, any animosity there. I mean, you know, we were used to him, you know, he had so much session work because at that time I think he played on... David Bowie's Space Oddity. That's right, yes. Not, not Oddity, Odyssey. And, um, yeah, so there was... He had a lot going on, so he was in and out of the studio. Some Like, on 30 days, he wasn't actually on that. And uh, so we, we, you know, we we, uh, we just got on with, you know, that, you know, that was the way it was. I mean, he was, uh, you know, in and out. And then when he when Amadivan told us he was joining us it really didn't come as any big surprise you know no it, yes well, you know, you yes know, and i think he, i think it was also i can't remember, i think it was life on mars as well he was on but then when he yeah did all those yeah. when he when he left you quickly replaced him anyway so this was the early 70s did at that stage, I mean, because there would been the you know the world of I suppose heavy rock started to come in, and then obviously the glam period. So with this with the band, did you feel like you had your own sort of niche at this point in the kind of the charts and in the singles chart? Um, well, we weren't actually uh, during the Witchwood period. We we hadn't charted yet, but the if we call it a, a niche, it was basically Dave Cousins, who's always been you know. And always will be, I suppose. He's uh, he he's always been the you know the mainstay of the schools with his songwriting, and so that all those albums you know which were included was um, you know basically we're all riding on what he was writing, and although my song in in on that thirty days was like nothing really, uh, it. People say it was a bit of an odd track. It was more poppy than the rest of it. But, you know, that's what I was writing at the time, and I didn't... Whereas when we got into Grave New World, I sort of eased into, you know, more of what Dave was writing and what was expected of the Straubs then, you know. Yes, so, I know. Because in the, the the next one, Burst In at the Seams, um, you, you, again, you... No, you... Grave New World. Grave New World. Oh, Grave New World. But then the sort of the 73 one burst into the seams. This is where you have two more sort of songs on the album, or three more actually, don't you? You do quite a few on this one. So have mm. you, has, has has the sort of, is, is that kind of a recording and, and sort of writing process, did that change much on that that sort of third album with the band? Um, it was, st- everyone was like, I suppose more people would chip in by then. We had Dave Lambert, the lead guitarist, and he was also writing. So we had like four writers, you know, myself, Richard Hudson, Dave Cousins and Dave Lambert. But it was still, at the helm, it was still Dave and his lyrics and songs. And we were sort of easing in towards that, you know. Although part of the union, which was, you know, 
a big hit for the Straws. Uh, we, uh, we, I did when I wrote that. I didn't actually, um, and I was working. Hudson and I formed this. Um, we were like a Hudson Ford writing team. We decided to become a Hudson Ford writer because you know Dave was writing on his own, and and Hudson and I, who had been sort of, you know, writing songs since our McGantries, decided to well, we're going to split everything. We're doing you know like the Beatles and that sort of stuff. Yes, and uh, we part of the union was not meant to be a Straub's, uh, you know, contribution. It, we were going to release it on its own as under the title of the Brothers or something, you know. But then, you know, the management heard it, the label heard it, and they decided to include it on the Straub's album. Nothing to do with me. You know. Yes. And, uh, Can you remember so where, that, you, yeah. where where was that song written? Because to be honest, that that was one of those songs that, you know, from my childhood, it was it was on the radio for us such a long time, wasn't it? We all we heard it everywhere. Actually, I tend I tend I still do this now, but I tend to sometimes I don't write anything for about two years. At the moment, I'm halfway through another solo album. Sometimes I wonder why I keep doing them. Anyway, <laughs> so I've got about half a dozen tracks, and now I won't. I'm giving it a break until I go to. Uh, after the school shows because I like these long breaks it gives me a lot of inspiration so, uh, to, uh, so in answer to your question part of the union I actually wrote that with two other songs I wrote that with um, and I sort of flip between you know I go back I do a bit I do it. I wrote that with Burn Baby Burn which was to become a hit for Hudson Ford and a song on our first album Hudson Ford album called I Wanted You I was fiddling around with all those three songs all, all in one afternoon up in my, my um, sister's bedroom, believe it or not. Right. When I was still, I was still living at home. So, yes, because yeah, the 70s was kind of famous for sort of strikes and unions. Was it, was it just kind of in yeah, your... Yeah, well, there, obviously it had a big effect on... And, and that song, even though, you know, we, had, we met Jack Jones of the Transport General Workers, but now they took it as their own, you know, union song. Which it was right, you know, the chorus is a union song, but the rest of it is uh, because it, it's a sarcastic look at what the trade unions. And, it, you know, I'm a union guy. I'm in the musicians' union. You know, you, couldn't, you could not join if you if you were on top of the pops, you had to join anyway. Yes. But anyway, um, so it, the, the, the verses are, you know, how powerful a union guy had become. You know, I'm a union man, amazing, well, you know, sort of stuff. You know. But, uh, you know, everyone, you know, Apparently loved it. So they loved it. It just went. Tony Blackburn used to they rushed out and when in the old days when you used to rush out and buy a record. Now you don't do that anymore. No, the singles. Well, they get they'd enter at number forty two and then go to thirty six and then twenty eight and yeah, it, was, it was a long. Yeah. It was a long yeah. and Sunday evenings or afternoons we used to listen to the radio, being very excited to know if a song went up five places and would get played because that's yeah. the only time you could hear a record. So. Cause the, it, yeah, I know. Yeah, it, and, that, it was great. Uh, you could, you, you either bought a record, or it was on the radio, or it was on TV. You had no other access to that, and that was that was great because, and that's what's wrong with the with with the business now. Kids now, they have access to anything without paying for it. Bands don't even, you know, bands release their albums on the internet because they know people are going to get it anyway. You know. Yes, it's ridiculous. It's, um, it's a, I know, little did you realize. But then, obviously, a bit like a lot of bands, when they get that single, the tour, did that suddenly, did your next, you know, like tour with the band just have a totally di- different atmosphere with a big sort of hit single? Oh, yeah, 73 was our, you know, this 
I think that the part of the union was released in January of 73. And we had, uh, you know, the tours were like wild. I mean, they were really were well in England. <laughs> and uh, we did, uh, you know, in Europe as well. We were never big in France for some reason. You know, I, never, I don't remember the straws going to France. And then, of course, we had the American tours, which uh, unions aren't so powerful over, over here. Mm. Uh, part of the union didn't mean that much over here, but... Uh, we we had, we had some good tours over here. Yeah, yes, good. But yeah, you're right. It was pretty wild. I mean, um, uh, you know, things I can't even repeat over the radio. No, would, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a different period, wasn't it? I know it's like one of those things we all just smile when you. Yeah, that was that was kind of interesting. But did you have an American kind of audience? And 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 the other thing with a lot of bands I've interviewed from Britain is that. Tour in America often finishes them off a bit. They they come back a little bit like they've been to Vietnam. They're a bit shell shocked and a bit like God, what was that? Um, you know, they, they don't know who they are and where they're living anymore. They're just a bit knackered. So yeah, what... well, it can be yeah. But I, I personally, I'm one of those people who love living in hotels. I mean, to me, I could be on the road all the time. But they were very. When you looked at the 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 uh, the tour. Uh, uh, you know, the tour guide and saw six weeks of of shows. It was a bit, you know, bloody hell, six weeks. Especially, you know, for, you know I, had a, I just met this girl, you know, and I went over to America. It was like, I'm sorry, I've got to go. Yes. <laughs> for six weeks. Yes. But America, you know, the first time we went was like, uh, was the greatest time of my life. I mean, we came from, um, in fact, I think we, we went to America before we hit it really big in 72. I think we went in 72, actually. Right. Yeah, when we had Grave New World out, yeah. And we flew to Los Angeles, A&M Records, had a big limousine. Oh, my God. We stayed at the Continental Hire House, which, like, you know, Led Zeppelin was there, and they were playing on Long Beach. We had about three nights in the Whiskey a Gogo. It was, like, the greatest time. Oh my it God. was unbelievable. The whiskey and the weather. You know, we up on the up on the roof in the pool. Everyone got rage. <laughs> it was it was absolutely fantastic, and it, and so it set us up for the rest of the tour, which wasn't the weather wasn't quite as good when you go to Chicago and all those no. places, but it was still great. Yeah, it was. Uh, I loved it personally. You know. I would imagine, yes. I, Mick Fleetwood was the same. He just said he loved that, going to a hotel, clean, clean towels, little soaps. You know, just yeah, it's great. Yeah, no it really is. room service, just enjoy it. Yeah. You know, and um, more than anything, which is, I think it's either. In, and Lemmy was probably the same. It was just rock and roll was in his blood, really. Mm. So that was good. Then, with, with then you sort of become the monks. What's this? What's the What's the sort of the scenario behind from the the Straubs to the monks happening? Well, it wasn't the Straubs. We left the Straubs and uh, Hudson and I and Ford, Hudson Ford, and we, and we had like a, a string of fits with them, uh, whilst Dave uh, formed another band, uh, formed another band under the Straubs, and they went on to make uh, uh, very big albums, you know, or uh, Ghosts and. Hero and Heroin. We actually were bigger albums in America than they were in England at that time. And so we made a couple of albums where Dave Cousins always said, we, we, we had the hit records and I had the hit albums. And if we'd have stayed together, we might have been as, you know, a lot bigger than what we are now. But, you know, who, who knows? Was it a big decision? Yeah, so was... uh, 
Was it a big decision Sorry. leaving the Straubs at that stage, or was it just what? No, you'd... it um, it it mainly was because of the uh, between me, Hudson, and Dave Cousins, as far as like songwriting in the band, basically was what it. And it it's um, it's it's very hard in a band when you've you know some of these bands you know you get one songwriter, he's a millionaire, and the rest of them are just on wages. Yes. But when you get a band where there's a lot of contributions coming from all sides, it can get a bit heated. And uh, looking back on it, I would have done things a lot different now in the straws instead of like, you know, making these camps and stuff, you know, what, what we had. Yes. And uh, so, the, you know, just Dave, Dave Cousins went one way with the straws and we went our way with Hudson Ford. And we, you know, we had a, you know, we had to pick up the pieces, floating in the wind, and you know. To, but then we never touring-wise, we never. Again, we we never did that much. We went to America. We we did all the stuff, but it sort of wound it, it it sort of wound down a bit when the punk movement came along. Yes. And we felt we started, I I personally started to feel a bit out of date with the stylistic singing. You know, there were these great voices, and we were like struggling to. You know, find another hit record after flowing in the wind, and it sort of went to. Um, it just sort of. It, it sort of died a bit, you know. And then the monks was a uh, totally. It, it was a fluke. The monks. We. I wrote this song called uh, "Nice Legs Showing About the Face." Yes, a classic made it a demo with our publisher because we were still under the same management. So we, Hudson and I recorded this demo. Which was actually the hit record, so we uh, we we sent it off with a bunch of other stuff, and this label came back and said we we like this song, we like to do it. So we said, well, when are we going? Okay, we'll re we record it properly. They said, no, we love it as it is because it sounded like the punk thing. So accidentally, we got into this, you know, we were roading on this punk, which we weren't really. I mean, we were nothing like the Sex Pistols or the Ramones or anything, you know. Yes. And, uh, but, you know, it it was, uh, you know, hit singles are like little pieces of art, and if people like them, they stand on their own two feet. And, you know, people bought it, and it got into the charts, and then we were asked to make an album, and which we did, and we wrote in a guy called Terry Cassidy, who was a, a session singer around at the time. And, because uh, basically I was fed up with singing, you know, lead and Hudson. I said, well, why don't we get like a decent singer in? And um, so that's how we ended up doing, um, you know, the, the Bad Habits album, which, uh, you know, I yes. don't know how far along the line you want to go with this. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, inter no it's, it's interesting because um, cause obviously, you know, with, with Hudson and Ford, you were on, is it A&M and then CBS? So obviously you did four albums with them, which is quite amazing. Yeah. And then, so what was it like, again, you know, you'd gone from that 60s period, which changed a lot, the 70s, and then, you know, punk coming in, which often, for a lot of, you know, a lot of people, even though they're not that much older when you look back, you know, oh, you're in your 20s, late 20s, but and there's these kind of little kids, you know, suddenly screaming lyrics and... Yeah, know, they weren't that, actually, at all, honestly, they... they Looked at, they weren't that much. I know, like John Lid, he's like a few years younger than I am. You know, they weren't <laughs> that young those people. You know, but I personally, I love that punk thing because even though I came up with the progressive folk rock thing, I always felt a lot of it was a bit self-indulgent. But 
I've got to be honest with you, I've never listened to a Genesis album. I've never listened to a Yes album. I mean, I've heard stuff. Yes. And I like it, but I'm not, I don't listen to albums. I, li- I listen, this, the only albums I listen to are the Straws, my own, and the Beatles. <laughs> the only album, oh, and the Rolling, maybe the Rolling Stones. But never, I never, so when the punk movement came around, I loved it with, with you know, just strumming the guitar. I thought, this is what I started doing. I love all this stuff. And so when we made the Monks album, I was doing that, you know, to me in our own way, and uh, and the police, you know, a bit of you know the uh, Andy Summers, um, yes, you know, chorus guitars, all that. I, I, we really enjoyed doing that album. I, I loved, it. even though it wasn't taken seriously by anybody, really, not in England anyway. So when you did in your, fact, when I remember there was a guy, there was a DJ called Kid Jensen. Oh yes, Kid. And he played. Uh, I think he played. Floating in the wind, and then he he stopped it and he said, "Now this is what they're doing now." And he got and he started playing nice legs showing about the face, which I thought was a bit cruel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, this is you're in a business. Music is a business, and you or you can only do what you've got, what you do. Okay, that's all you can do. You got a talent. It's either good enough or it's not good enough. There's a lot of luck involved, and all the way through these phases that I had. With the soul music, with the the psychedelic and the flower power and the and the uh, the glam and all that sort of stuff, you just roll along with it, you know. And you gotta, you just do what you gotta do, you know. And if you can write songs that people like, then there you, you want to roll. I mean, with the material on bad habits with the monks, you like drugs in my pocket and spotty face. Were you kind of channeling the spirit of uh, putting yourself into a kind of a different? you know, um, age or different sort of identity for that, for, for writing that material? Um, basically, every song was a... It, we took, like, Nice Legs Showing About the Face, which, incidentally, you know, I just to go off on, on a tangent here, I played a club in, um, in Manhattan recently and with all this woke... I'll say it on the air, crap going on. <laughs> I was asked not to do nice legs shown about the face in case it offended some women, and I did it anyway. <laughs> so that song, and, and, oh yeah, getting back to what I was saying, was actually uh, a, a line from my ex-wife, uh, my ex-English wife. Yes. When she said to me, uh, we used to a girl walking out, nice legs shown about the face. I thought, oh, it's a good title for a tune. I should have given her royalties, but <laughs> so that. Sort of sarcastic look where a guy goes out with someone, he makes a laughing hand because he hasn't got a nice face. We took that in the Bad Habits album, and every song on there is like a sarcastic look at, you know, bad habits with, them, you know, uh, uh, just a bad kid, you know, going into cinema, getting into nothing, smoking in the dark. And a lot, I can't remember a lot of the other time. We even did one about Dear Jerry, which was yes. politician Jerry, an MP, I think he. Was gay. You couldn't again. Oh, you couldn't write those sort of songs. Yes, I think Jerry is about that. Yeah, I'm, and then the, the hit record in Canada was called "Drugs in My Pocket," and I that, don't know what to do with them. Couldn't write that now. Yeah. <laughs> and Cherry Cassidy had a, a very good, aside from being a, a good singer, he had a good way of putting on voices. And a lot of those tracks had all different voices: Indian voices, uh, you know, Greek, vo- you know. You couldn't do that album now without offending somebody. You know, it wasn't meant to be offensive. We just thought it was funny. Yes, I still think. Well, I think it captures that time of the the sort of late seventies. Yeah. We did the same with the second album, 
suspended animation, which is about the the actual track suspended is about a robot who's you know uh, getting it on with you know a, a, a female robot, <laughs> you know all that stuff, you know. It's just funny, you know. It's, it's, you know yes. I mean, it was kind of an interesting time because 79, when Bad Habits came out, that was when Thatcher got in and then, you know, obviously was in for the next decade and, um, yeah. and beyond. And then we had, you know, like the Falkland War, the miners' crisis. Then we had, um, yeah, Greenham Common. We thought we were all going to be, you know, nuked at that stage in life as well. What was it like for you sort of then sort of navigating yourself into the kind of 80s and still kind of keeping interested in music? Well, when we when we when we when the monks hit, I thought it, as a musician again, you know, it was like I I thought God, this is like it was a whole new high, you know. We, we've got we've got a hit record out of nowhere, and it's like, you know. and at the same time, we were messing around with a a third because I was always a fan of Django Reinhardt, you know, the guitar. Yes, that was introduced to me by my father, who was you know used to follow him around, and you know during the war period. And uh, I w- we started writing these songs with like a poppy thing, with but with the Jago Reinhardt rhythm guitar back in there, you know that sort of junk, 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 junk with the jazzy chords. And we formed, we had the, we we were forming this band called High Society. High Society was actually going before. That's what we came out of Hudson Ford when we started doing that stuff with Jerry Cassidy. And then when the Monks hit, we had to drop the whole thing. And go out on these monks tours, you know. Um, so it was a whole new. I couldn't believe it, you know. It was like, you know, it was just something that came out of thin air, just luck, I suppose. Yes. Again, with the music business, there's a lot of luck involved. And when we went to Canada to do, because Can- see, the thing with Canada, and it was only by sheer uh, uh, bad luck that we didn't hit big in America because. We were signed, I, got, I can't even get into this, you know, because it's boring, but we were signed to a very tiny label over here that asked too much money for us to be on Capitol Records. Basically, that was it. So, but in Canada, we were still on uh, whatever label we were on, you know, uh, up there. And when we went there, it, it was like, you know, it, it was like the beat. They took the album and the monks for what it was and not ex Hudson Ford guys. Yes. And we weren't old. We were like, you know, we were just in in our thirties, you know, thirty two, I think I was. You know, so it was like we were a bunch of old guys going over, and it, it was great. I mean, it was like the tours were great. It was it was unbelievable. Yes. Was really awesome. And did you at that stage? Did you play any of those kind of clubs like CBGBs or Max's Kansas City or 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 those uh, those in New not York? Not as the monks. No, no, we never came to the US as the monks. Oh right, but no, as we, never came. But we did. Uh, we were doing big halls, you know, and. And like, uh, um, not soccer stadiums. Uh, uh, what do they play with the the, the puck thing? With, and the, uh, with, on the ice. All oh that, all yes, that ice hockey. Yeah, yeah. Ice hockey. Yeah, right, all those sort of stadiums and Massey Hall. We did, which I did previous with Hudson Ford, and um, yeah, it, it was we were bigger. And then uh, a, a few years ago, uh, there was this band called Small Sins whose whole career was influenced by the monks. And I went over as a guest uh, get a guest of the night. And I'm looking at on my in my studio wall here. It's a triple platinum album for Bad Habits uh, that I, I received on that night. Excellent. And they did the whole... Yeah, they did the whole Bad Habits album in its entirety with all these different singers, and it was great. I couldn't believe it. I got into Toronto 
the papers of like the monks had never left. It was like big articles. Oh, yeah, the monks, uh, you know, I couldn't believe it. It was unbelievable. Yeah, we had, uh, it was quite a time over there, actually. Absolutely. So when, so when did you just think with the monks, two albums, that was kind of enough? And then you went into high school. Well, the second album, although we got a gold, again, I'm looking at a gold album for suspended animation there. Um, the, the second album didn't do as well as the first album. Okay? So, and then I don't, as far as I can remember, I think we went back for another tour, but we never went back again. And then by that time, uh, things started to, uh, you know, again, sort of disintegrate as far as like, you know, people in the band and stuff. And then, which brings us to, um, I think it brings us to like 80, um, cool. 82. Uh, yeah, I remember at 1980, I was, I was painting my front door of my house and I heard John Lennon die because we got the dues like oh. eight hours after it happened. Though. Yes. So I always remember that, like 1980. And then um, we did the straws. Rick Waitman had a show called Gas Tank. It was like a cable show of his. Uh, oh, like yes. a chat sort of, uh, you know, bands and stuff. And we were asked by, and we were, I think maybe we were still on tour with the most, I don't know, but all I know is I turned up playing behind Dave Cousins with Ice Shadow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know a bright red jacket and then and there's Dave and Tony in their sort of uh, country boy shirts you know? <laughs> and so we were asked to go on there with Rick and do and we did a performance of Hangman and the Papist excellent and then shortly after that um, we were asked by the Cambridge Fo- we're talking about 82, 83 Cambridge Folk Festival to do uh, a show at the Cambridge Folk Festival Rick Waitman couldn't do it because he was already at something other. So we rode Blue Weavering, and that went down the storm. I remember it poured with the rain halfway through the set, and everyone stood up, and it just, it was like magical. It was unbelievable. And then, um, from then on, we started doing these, um, I think we did a couple of things with, with the band, with Blue Weaver again, and Tony Hooper. There was me, Hudson, Brian Willoughby, Dave Cousins, Tony Hooper, and Blue Weaver in that lineup, and then we went to America to do. I think it was part of the reunion tour, which was in 1984 right. Christmas, and we had we were playing at this place called the Bottom Line, which is now defunct, and um, we did like three or four nights there. We were still big in, you know, big over there, you know, and uh, and then on that very night, I met my who I didn't know at the time was to be my wife, to be American wife. And I moved over here the next year. And then I sort of left the Straubs and uh, I suppose I was in it, still in it at the time. Um, And then that I've been here ever since. Blimey. The mid eighties. You, you'd done it. Yeah. I was over here. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and so with the, with the occasional reunion with the Straws, but then it's, you know, kind of full-on solo career, isn't it, from then on? Well, the solo career, I wasn't really, I mean, my solo career was like nothing. I, I, I didn't come here, so I didn't come here as a, a, a career move, musical career. I came here because uh, of, you know, my son's mother, yes. basically. And uh, which, when I think back on it, coming over here at 36 was not a good idea. But, you know, I'm still here. But anyway, um, so what happened, I, I came over here, was, we were, you know, we were together, and uh, I got a call from the Straws agent. He said, Rick Waitman 
I've got Rick Waitman over here on tour. He said, would you like to open? I said, I'm a bass player. The schools, I'm not a, a solo act. He said, well, I'm sure you can think of something. So I went on and opened up for Rick with acoustic guitar. I hadn't really no songs of any work. I mean, other than part of the union and a couple of schools. But somehow I got through it. And I thought, you know, I sort of like this solo thing, you know. And, and I've been, and that's, you know, and I stayed here and, um, you know, and that was it. Still. Yes, but you've, so High Society didn't last that long then as a sort of a project? No, not really. Although Hudson and Terry Cassidy, they did reform it and do some shows, you know, obviously without me. I mean, you know, they, they did carry on and do some stuff. Yes. But uh, there was a lot of good songs that came out of that High Society. Uh, the only problem was is that, it was, um, the whole image was like a sort of a non-starter. I mean, Terry Cassidy was singing in this sort of high society sort of singing voice, a bit like the old crooners in the yes. 30s, you know, that sort of stuff. But there was a lot of good songs on there. And, and if someone, you know, what, you know, should would take them and, and, and make a, a show out of it, that it would really be great. But, I mean, it's never happened. I suppose it will never happen. But, mm. So when did you yeah. when did you decide then to sort of think right I'm going to start writing material Was this the kind of the nineties that you started to or the late mid Oh, writing material over here. Yeah, for your solo yep. career. Yeah, my solo so I, sort of immediately because see, I I'm one of those people I can't stop writing songs. Okay, I may not write for a couple of years sometimes, but I you know sometimes I wake up in the morning I've got a tune about it. I just can't help it, you know. Oh, I hear something on the radio and I mispronounce a line and I thought, oh, that's a good line. Did they really say that? Because I don't want to get into, uh, you know, any, uh, um, you know, plagiarism or anything. And, <laughs> but, uh, that's what it's, so we, I'm always right. I'm always doing something. And if I, and now, you know, with the, with, with iPhones, I can just sing something in the phone and go back to it later. You know, you didn't have that facility in the old days because all you had was a tape recorder and, you know, it was, you know, things are so It's a lot easier. No, I'm, I, so immediately I had, and I think I've had about, I don't know, about 10 solo out, including like two Christmas albums. Yes. Out, I, think. I mean, so none what, of them have sold a million, but they've, uh, you know, you know, people, uh, people like them, I suppose. Yes. And, uh, so I was listening, because you started with Love is the Highway. Was that the first solo album you put out? Yeah, that was the first one. I had this old sort of... Uh, Tascam eight track, and that was another thing. Although I'd been in recording studios all my life, I was never um, interested in the technical side of it. It, it. To me, you know, the producer and the engineer were doing the sound. We either liked it or we didn't like it. When I came over here and got my, I suddenly got into gear, and I'm looking at all these gear here in my studio. I just love when I when I when I need inspiration to write a song. I just, I just buy a new piece of gear. It doesn't matter what it is. Like, it could be a compressor or, you know, something stupid. <laughs> it just gives me inspiration. When I come back from the school center, I'm getting a new synthesizer. But yeah, I mean, uh, and I got into God, this old eight track. I had seven tracks. The drums ran on a sync track. And I recorded that first Love is the Highway album. In fact, I never even had a CD player. I was sending stuff out on cassettes at that point. Right. But, you know, it was fun. You know, it was fun. And, um, when I listen back to it now, they sound pretty awful. But now the last three albums have been sounding pretty good because of 
technologies change, you know. Yes, absolutely. That's been that's been fantastic. Yeah, because I've been listening to your your latest ones because they're kind of much kind of easy to hear. But there was one, "Life is a Foreign Town." That one came out two years ago, didn't it? Was they this? Uh, yeah, actually, I recorded that right in the middle of the pandemic. Basically, most of it. Right. Uh, in fact, we did a video that went worldwide of one song on there called "All Locked Down" about the pandemic. So I have to write. See, that's. That's how I write. I have to write topical songs. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, what the hell rhymes with quarantine? And I come in there, we're all locked down in quarantine. And, whatever. and uh, you know, and we we did, uh, um, I got all the band to my, well, it was all me on the recording because we couldn't go out. So I did everything. But I, when we, the band mined their parts and we sent it off to the this show, I think it was, Jam sixty nine. I can't remember the name of the place. But it was out of um, it was out of Florida. The guy producer and he got all these acts from all around the world who couldn't go out with the pandemic. And he put we sent him the four you know uh, videos of each person in my band. And if you go on my Facebook, you can see it all locked down. But yeah, the uh, so that whole album uh, was yeah basically done. And uh, in the in twenty as was the Straub's album. Uh, settlement which again we all did you know via computer yes so settlement but then is there a new strawberry album called the magic of it all is that yep 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 we did that the same way right the same way so how so just to get the chronological kind of narrative here when you were in america did you do much work with the strawberries apart from the occasional reunion tour or did you continue recording with them uh, no, um, around um, 2000, we had. I went over to England to do the 30th anniversary, which was done in where was that done? Uh, Chiswick or somewhere. Right. And then, then we had some tours after that, around 2001 and two, and then they they formed uh, they formed the Acoustic Source, which was Brian Willoughby and Dave Lambert, and then. Um, then I came over again for the 40th, which was done at, um, where was I done? Some stadium, rugby stadium in... Uh, oh, Twickenham. Twickenham? Twickenham, right, yeah, that was it. It did, did that, and then uh, we had albums, you know, there was a Shawby Fair album on that. And then um, just prior to the pandemic, 2019, the 50th was done in New Jersey over here, which was pretty easy for me because I learned it that far. And we did, that was great. That was a great, we had everyone on that. I mean, uh, a Blue Weaver flew over. We had, uh, we had the existing band, you know, Lambert, Jazz Cronk. Yes. And we had Tony Visconti came and conducted the orchestra. We had Annie Haslam, who was, oh, did some vocals. Was she in Renaissance? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. She lives over here as well. Yeah. We all move over here. We all move <laughs> over here. And just as a footnote, uh, I don't know whether you know this, but around 97, I hooked up with Richie Blackmore, who also lives on Long Island. You know, Richie Blackmore from... Yes. He lives out a bit further out than me. He lives further east than me. And, and he, uh, he, you know, he wasn't doing Rainbow or Deep Ocean. And he, at that time in 97, he just formed with his wife uh, Blackmore's Night, which is like a medieval folky thing. I know. It's uh, brilliant. I, I really liked. I mean, I really... And I was on the second album. I sang a song on there. Oh, was uh, that a under a, a violet moon? Under a violet, violet, violent. 
under a violet moon. I'll say violet moon. <laughs> yeah, and me, him, and her, before they actually formed the band, we used to just turn up at clubs because Richie didn't want people to know where he was because, uh, you know, there'd be a big crowd there. Yes. We used to turn up at these bars, sing a few songs, and then just walk out again. And um, I was... Um, yeah, so we made the album, and which I, th- I thought the stuff was great. And Richie is a real sort of perfectionist. I wasn't really aware. I mean, I'd heard of Richie Blackmore, of course, but I wasn't aware of how great he was no. until I saw him in the. I was in the same room and he plays the acoustic guitar. He's like, he's he's out of this world. He really is. So anyway, um, I sort of was about to go on tour with them because he likes tour in Germany and castles and all that. But then I went on tour with the Straws prior to that, and we had a you know we had a bit of a falling out over that. And uh, I sort of, I never, you know, I never recorded with them oh. since then. But they've done well. I mean, they, again, like me, they've had about two dozen albums now, you know. Yes, and, uh, they're always... Had a couple of kids in the interim, you know. Candice. So, Candace. Yeah, they were great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, Candice and I, she was great. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's great. I really like... It's a nice change, isn't it, when you can sort of hear somebody who's doing something completely different and probably saved his yeah. hearing in the meantime. So with the straw, yeah. my God, the straws have been very busy, haven't they? So you did the tour. Was that the 2012 tour you mentioned that you toured with them? Or was that... God, I'm getting confused. Uh, going back to early 2000, we did 2000 tour, and maybe 2001, I can't remember exactly. And then I never did anything until the 30th anniversary, which which, which would have been, hang on, what year, what year was, was that? I can't remember. Um, it was right in the middle of 2000, about 2000. Yes. And then the 40th, I, by the way, the 40th was around 2009. So it may have been 99, maybe. Yeah, probably 99, that 30th. And then the pandemic, prior pandemic, was 2019, April, uh, you know, a few years back. And then, um, yeah, and and then after that, um, Dave approached me. uh, He asked, he he sent me some lyrics. And and the thing about that is Dave and I have never written in the whole of the Straub's career together, other than collaborate on... Stuff like, I don't know whether you're familiar with, like, Tears and Van, where, you know, I wrote a bit of an instrumental there and they added a lyric. But as far as, like, writing together, we've never done that. So that is quite a, you know, um, you know, it's great. I mean, for me, I mean, to me, it's a, it's, it, I can't even come close to his lyrics. Yes. I mean, right. Yeah, I mean, to me. So he sent me these lyrics, uh, which was to be uh, each manner of man. And... Uh, I think I either already had a tune already or I wrote one to these, I can't remember. And then that became that. And then um, that's how we did that album. And, um, uh, the, and the, of course, with the Settlement album, there was contributions from Dave Lambert and Chas Cronk and the usual, you know, the lineup. I think they had Dave Bainbridge on the keyboards. Yes. That's how, you know, yeah. That's and the new one is, um, that is a whole different ball game. That is, um, that again, I... I, I've got two tunes on there with Dave. One is a Christmas song called um, Christmas Ghosts, which Dave has um, he's taken a, a, a lot of uh, Charles Dickens's sort right. of titles and 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 woven them into this sort of Christmas song, which was very clever. And then I've got one other song called um, where I can't remember the title now. He changed the title so many times. Um, uh, our world, our world. We did that, 
Right. And then the rest of the stuff is either is all mainly all his. With, 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 I think he's written a couple with Blue Weaver as well on that. Yes. So yeah, that's coming out. That should be out in um, to coincide with this with this little tour we're doing. Blimey, because this one is going to be quite a consciousness rising, raising exercise, isn't it? The the magic of it all. Is it to do with his kind of interest in struggles of in South Africa? Is this the is this the well, the magic of it all? Yes. What the song you mean? No, but the album was that was there. What well, I'm just kind of reading the bit actually on Cherry Red Records actually talking about we're high on the charts. Oh, well, with... Dave, uh, Dave um, did some. So- Dave recently uh, found out that the straws were bigger in South Africa than we ever knew. So he went over there and did some a few successful solo tours and met up with um, a bass player called uh, Shork Juba. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm oh, yes. Shork Juba or Jubert. And he did some shows with him, bass player and acoustic guitar. And um, so it came to be that when um, they decided to do the album over there, at least the backing tracks, and he flew over with Blue Weaver, and uh, he, he asked me to go, but me being really on the other side of the world, I, it was a bit too. I couldn't really get over there. It was, it was too much of a yes, uh, too much for me just to fly like twenty four hours. I would like to have gone, but so they did. The backing tracks became what is to be, uh, you know, the the, the new album. Uh, Blue Weaver uh, produced it and then did all the songs, and then was brought back. To, Blue Weaver lives in Germany, and he produced it and got it all together from there. And throughout last summer. Um, I was doing, you know, vocals, refining the lyrics, uh, refining the tunes and all the lyrics. And um, so basically, that's it. I mean, um, um, what else, and whatever else you've heard. Yes, I mean, it was, um, what's what's amazing, because it's, I think the cover is absolutely stunning. And it's quite an unusual one for the straws, isn't it? In a sense, it's quite a different image that it's projecting. Yes, I, I, unfortunately, I can't tell you anything about that because I, it, it was designed by the label, you know, the, the label. Cherry Red. And um, I think basically, I think Dave said he chose it because he just thought it was a, a great colour. Yes. And, uh, the inside sleeves are good as well because it's got all the lyrics with all the people who are performing on it. And there's a lot of women on there. Catherine Craig, who appeared with us on... Um, on the uh, 50th anniversary, she's a singer, wife of Brian Willoughby, who's also going to be on this tour. Yes. Um, is on there. Plus the three uh, South African guys, that, you know, the rhythm section. And um, Blue on keyboards, Dave on guitar, and, and me doing a lot of singing. Blimey. And, yeah, it's, uh, you know. And, and, and the actual tune, Dave's tune, um, uh, The Magic of It All, is basically a chronological sort of, at least the way I read it, of, of the whole Straub's career, uh, you know, from when they started off. Yeah. Sort of, it gets through and, and goes through that, which is quite nice. Because I know that it was Dave who, who had a song called The Water Song, and that was that kind of South African... Thing. Yeah, that, was, uh, that, that emanated from that uh, when he was over there, and I think he wrote a tune for or lyrics to some tune and kids all saying that. Yeah, I mean, he, he, um, he's... he's uh, and also, I think he's he's got a charitable thing there about getting water to to these 
poor communities. I don't know much about it, but it's uh, you know it's all going on today. But yeah, I mean, apparently they love the straws in South Africa. I mean, who do? <laughs> there was some. There was a film, wasn't there? The Sugar Man, who was about this guy who made an album and just became a cleaner, and then found out he was massive in America. You know, in Africa, he was like El- bigger than Elvis, and. Uh, he then sort of in later life became, you know, resurrected his life for a brief period before he sadly passed away. So, um, yes, these things happen, don't they? It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But but with the, you've got some live dates in the summer, haven't you? This is important. You've got... Yes, yes. And this is going to be... We have, uh, well, first of all, yeah, we uh, the Straws were approached to do the uh, Fairport Convention Festival, Cropperty. Yeah. Uh, I think that's out in Oxford somewhere, isn't it? I've never been there. Yes. So that is that is happening on August the 11th. Excellent. And, um, and then we got two shows at Trading Boundaries um, with, on the 6th and the 7th. I'm not sure what days are. I think it's month, Sunday and Monday. And then we got another, uh, the Tower Theatre, which I think is somewhere in the Folkestone area. Don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. No. That's on the 9th. So it's all leading up to the Cropperdry Festival. Yes. And when you when you get back together, do you have a quick rehearsal or do you just have to... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll be rehearsing. OK. Are <laughs> you joking? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely be rehearsing. There's a lot of big rehearsals coming up. Does it feel quite, you know, because I know, you know, if you, as we all get older, health becomes a thing and Dave's had quite a few health moments as well recently. Does it, does it feel quite special with the band, you know, knowing that you know, as we all get, you know, in our autumn years, that this is this is probably the last, is this going to be the last album, do you think, with the band? I'm not too sure about that. Uh, Dave is such a trooper, you know, even with his health issues. The fact that he's doing this and organising everything like he always did, I, I don't think this is going to be the last, uh, no, by, by no means. I mean, I've seen Dave, he's been deathly ill you know, during the past, couldn't even speak. He's gone and done the best vocals he's ever done in his life. You know, so <laughs> I, you know, it's, uh, Dave is, uh, yeah. I won't, you know, I, I don't think that for one minute. I mean, maybe you know, I'm I'm guesting here. I mean, I haven't been asked to rejoin. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm just sort of doing a guest spot over here. In fact, I was never really asked to join. Dave said to me, "What when we when I first went to the White Bear, he said, well, what what are you doing Tuesday?'" And that was it. And I was in the band. <laughs> Ever asked me, said, "What are you doing Tuesday?" And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, Davis, uh, he'll still be going. Yes. And did you? And you've got. You mentioned you got an album. You you're writing at the moment, and that's coming out. Is that this year or next year? Um, I think I think it's more likely next year because I've got half a dozen tracks now. So, but I'm not doing anything because my mind's too. Uh, fixed on the straws thing. Um, so by the time I get back, it'll be like, you know, the autumn. And so, no, I'll probably probably be next year. But I've already have a title. It's called Who Stopped the World? The track is already done. Yes. Who Stopped the World? Again, topical track, Who Stopped the World? Who derailed the train? You know, it's, uh, you know, all to do with the pandemic stuff. and like so. World's going to hell in a handbasket while we're... Worrying about doing shows, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and do you sort of still just play live in clubs around? Oh yeah, I did a show a couple of weeks ago um, in uh, not far from where I live on Long Island. Uh, it's um, not a big place, you know, about three hundred seats. 
I'm sort of, you know, I still draw a decent crowd, but I, I don't do, as I say, a lot of the cover bands around it, they're all doing bars. I used to do bars when I first came here just for the hell of it, you know, because it was a novelty for me, but I don't do them anymore. Yes. you got to play. you got to play. My son, uh, who's also got a band here called Lucky Dangerous, he um, he has the same problem because he's not a cover band, and he, he his stuff is more like sort of Green Day and uh, loosely on Green Day and Ramones. And, yes, but he he has the same problem, even though he's like he's like thirty and he's young, um, because he's not you know these bars want to you know who you're going to draw, what stuff do you play when someone playing Pink Floyd, and he has the same sort of problem. So, but yeah, I did. Uh, so we did about a two-hour show a couple of weeks ago. I'm, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I still enjoy it. It's great. Yes, it's absolutely. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your, like, 16-year-old self starting out in this interesting world and uh, career, um, is there anything in particular you might have just sort of said, oh, yeah, by the way, I would I would focus on that, or I'd, I'd check that out a bit more, or, or would you think, oh, what the hell? Um, I would have said to him, Stay with your first British wife. <laughs> That's what I would say. Because <laughs> uh, American women are oh, out there, I'm telling you. Anyway, um, no, I, no I, I don't know what I would have said because, again, it's a series of events where, um, like if I hadn't have got that audition in 1967 with the Five Proud Walkers where Richard Hudson was already in the band right, playing the drums, if I hadn't have got that, I don't know where my life would have... Because from there, I went to all, all these all these doors open with Elma Gantry, with the Straws, with, with, you know... And eventually, I wouldn't be sitting here on Long Island if it wasn't for those, you know, all, all those opportunities. And it, as I say, being a musician, it's, it's a lot of luck. And I don't know what I would have... I could. I don't know whether I could have done done anything different as far as being a musician. I wouldn't have taken a different path because you can only do what you can do. You're of a. To me, your development as a musician is, you get it when you're a teenager. You know all these. You know the Beatles. They they they, they did all their stuff when they were teenagers, and that's that's what sticks with you. You don't really get it. I suppose you get better, but it's all it's all there. But by the time you're twenty, you mm-hmm. don't suddenly become really good when you're like 45 you know <laughs> you've either got it or you haven't yes and that's basically what it is so i don't know i i think um again i i there's a couple of things i couldn't say on the radio i would have done different but the uh as far as the music thing i i don't know i didn't i, I don't think so no just, just um, roll with it, you know? and and if you were to um you know someone said look what would you recommend uh, for your Incredible catalogue and discography. Which which kind of album or albums would you say? Yeah, they they're the ones that I'm really proudest of. You know, because um, that's a hard question. Um, I think the milestone ones. I mean, we've got to skate over um, the Elmer Gantry stuff, but the milestone things are, you know, the Straub's Grave New World, which is considered you know, almost a cult album now. Yeah. And Bursting of the Seams was good. And uh, Hudson Ford, I mean, you know, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to ask. You know, you, you always like what you do. I mean, there's some things I don't like. You know, there's some... Like Hudson Ford's last album, I don't like. that. Like, we did Bucerius, that wasn't good. We've got one good song on there. But, um, uh, and I also think, you know, again, I like my... I'm happy doing my solo stuff. And, of course, I'm going to like that. I mean, uh, you know... I'm not the great. I, 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 I mean, I'm not the greatest singer in the world, but I sort of, I sort of, you know, I'm sort of passable. And I've, I, I think I've written some of my best songs over here on my solo albums, even though, you know, they're not like million sellers and things, you know. But uh, so you know, it's up there. Yes. And that's amazing. I mean, it's just incredible that 50 years and people are still picking over the band and, and getting very excited, you know, with the Straubs. And, um, they, they... Yeah, I mean, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, the Straubs sort of seem to... As Blue Weaver said, because Blue, you know, left when we did and he went into... Uh, he hooked up with the Bee Gees and he was with all that, you know, all those recordings of, you know, Jive talking, all that stuff. Yes. Played the keyboard. And... Um, he said, although you leave the stores, you never really leave because somehow you're always drawn back in. And I, I don't, you know, I find it fascinating, uh, you know, at, at my age, which we, we won't discuss at the moment, <laughs> that I'm back playing with the straws again. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yes, you can. Yes. It's, it's a bit good, like, you know, it's, yeah. It's like that um, Hotel California, isn't it? You can check out, but you can never... Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's a good analogy. You're always it's always going to drag you in, and I guess you're always getting new fans, aren't you? I, I think that's yeah. the thing. People are always yeah, and it's good because I really, you know, I think Dave chooses musicians that he knows that are that are, um, you know, they know how to approach and play on his music. Like he sent, like this last time, he sent me all these vocals, you know, lead, and I know immediately what to do on it as far as the harmonies. You know, I send them back, and he checks them over. And but it and it's always been the same with any member of the Straws. You know, Lambert, Gronk, Hudson, uh, you know, Blue or Rick Wakeman. They, you you adhere to this sort of goal, and you know, you know, you, you know what to do. It's just it's why it's always been with this with Dave stuff. You know? Yes, and it's great that people have been. You know, they bring out these kind of amazing photographs from. Fifty years ago, black and white photographs at, in pubs and clubs and backstage, and yeah, yeah, they're so evocative. Yeah. So, with this kind of these dates, will Rick appear at all? Did you say? Or no, Rick won't. No, no, Rick's gone way beyond the straws. He was actually, in fact, he was appearing a few miles from me in a in a venue called the Paramount in a place called Huntington on his solo tour. No, no, Rick won't play this role. But his younger son is uh, Adam, I think. He's he's on the on the bill. Yes, playing the keyboards as well. Yeah. So the, let me tell you the lineup there. The lineup is uh, Dave Cousins, myself on acoustic guitar singing, uh, Blue Weaver on keyboard synthesizers, uh, Catherine Craig vocals, Brian Willoughby lead guitar, and the I think there's one other girl singer called uh, Catherine. Can't read my own writing. And uh, I can't remember. Uh, but the guys, the the um, the South African guys are Short Jubert or Jubert. Yeah. Kevin. Um, damn, I can't read their names because I haven't met these guys yet. And yeah, you'll have to check that out. Oh, Kevin, there's Ke there's a Kevin Gibbon, Gibson. Yeah. 
Kevin, yeah, yeah, I think it's Gibson. Yes, there is quite a lot of interesting names on that album. That's basically the rhythm section. Yes, it's going to be, it's going to channel the spirit of Graceland and Paul Simon at this rate, isn't it? Yeah, well, they have got that sort of feel, which is giving this album a different feel. It's more of a sort of a jazzy, sort of looser feel. Yes, a bit of high life. That'll be fascinating. And your fans, they seem very protective of the band, don't they? The Straub's fans are, you know, they're very committed. It's like a religion, isn't it, that band? You know, the... Yeah, well, yeah. Have you been on the Straub site recently? <laughs> I had a quick look and thought, oh, blimey, I'm stepping away here. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you know, it's, um, you know, the, uh, the delicate subject, which I've had nothing to do with, I mean, uh, but, you know, Dave Lambert and Chaz Cronk and Tony Fernandez and um, Dave Branches won't won't be appearing on this. Although Dave Dave did offer them to appear. Uh, I know that. Uh, but uh, they won't be appearing. Yes. But as I say, it's, it's not my no. decision. I, you know, nothing to do with it. I know. And what, what goes on, you know, with them internally is... Uh, I've been out of the band too long. To, to know what goes on. You know? It's, a, it's the perfect place to be, isn't it, really? You just don't want to... It gets a bit cobwebby. You get a bit stuck up and, um, yes, confused. It's um, it's probably but, a little... You know, that, that is, uh, that's being in a band. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a very democratic sort of uh, situation that you're in with any band. And um, it's, you know, stuff happens, you know. Yes. Although they, when, when I appeared with them at the... It was great seeing them, you know, Chaz is a great guy, Lambert. In fact, I lent Lambert my um, uh, Vox, I bought a couple of Vox, because I, I still use Vox AC30s here, over here, and I, I bought two of them to the show, and, he, and I was very happy that he, he used my amplifier all the way through the show. But yeah, we get on great, Tony Fernandez is great. But, uh, but you know, this is the lineup that's happening on these shows. It's going to be brilliant. It's going to be fresh. It's going to be exciting. Anyway, and the sun will shine and you'll have a great summer. So it's better than lockdown, isn't it? But I hope your solo, next solo album comes out soon. Well, you said next year. So I hope that goes well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. This has been amazing. And yes, like I said, so many memories of so many of your songs. So uh, it's been great. Yes. But anyway, look, again, thank you ever so much. And I have to say that this time the reception was so much easier. So um, there you go. Oh, it's great. It's, uh, this is how uh, usually the uh, when I do calling, it's, it's uh, sometimes better than, you know, calling locally. Yeah. It's good. But it's been, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Yeah, I don't know how I remember all this stuff, but it's I still there. do. <laughs> <laughs> Look, take care. And uh, yes, all the best for the summer and this year. Yeah, thank you, David. Thank you. Take care. See you later. Bye-bye. 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 And that was me in conversation with the amazing John Ford as we um, went through all those musical bands. I won't repeat them. I know I could do. Anyway, you'll find out more information on various social media platform sites. John is on Facebook, so you can find out more about his um, releases and also the Straubs here, there and everywhere. This has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me for some nice reason or groovy, who knows, or leave some nice feedback, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Um, Yes, there you go. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.